Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is a view from the couch, and it's really a view out of the uh, front of the windshield of my car. As I drive today, I've been on the road a lot this week for work, so I had to make a decision, either no podcast this week or a podcast that's not going to sound quite as good as a normal uh, podcast does because I'm going to have to record from the road today. So, uh, you know, jobs and responsibilities and things like that kind of, I say I would say get in the way, but really... Uh, podcast is probably what's getting in the way, but uh, very excited to be talking to you today. We've got a very interesting show. There's a lot going on right now. We'll start with talking about the Braves today. Uh, the, the regular season, amazingly, is winding down. Only 10 games left for the Atlanta Braves in the 2020 regular season, so we're going to talk about the Braves. We're going to talk about the team's recent performance. We're going to talk about Cole Hamels, talk about Ron Lacuna. We're going to talk about all of it, and we're going to start talking about the playoff picture, what that looks like, and kind of an overview for me at least um, of how I'm feeling about the team, the franchise, and just everything that kind of goes into that. We're also going to talk about the big news this week. Big, big, big news out of the Big, Big Ten. Um, The Big Ten reverse course earlier this week decides to uh, vote unanimously to return to the field. So we're going to talk all about the decision, what led to the decision, some of the conspiratorial kind of thoughts around it, but also a little bit of just where I, I truly believe that that all this information kind of came from and how this decision was made. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll finish up the episode today with this weekend's viewing guide. I will warn you now, this is not the greatest weekend of college football. Uh, in fact, it's probably going to be by far the worst weekend of college football for this entire season. But this is also the last weekend before we have some SEC games and then we have some legitimate ACC and Big 12 crossover games. And as I said, the Big Ten's on the way. So it's going to get better. This weekend's not great. But between college football, pro football on Sunday, and then wrapping it up, uh, at least the bow on it for me is going to be the fact that the U.S. Open is also happening this weekend. There's plenty going on in the world of sports to be able to keep us occupied for the weekend. So thank you so much for listening. Again, I apologize about the quality, the sound quality today. You're going to hear blinkers clicking. Uh, hopefully you don't hear any horns blowing, but we'll we'll see. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. As I said, we'll start today with the Atlanta Braves, as we have pretty much this entire you know ever since the uh, podcast came back, and and for good reason. Baseball's been happening, and now we're getting into the meat of the season. Uh, Ten games left, so. We'll kind of run down the rest of the schedule. The Braves will open up a three-game series tonight in New York uh, against the Mets as uh, Max Fried comes off of the injury list. He will start for the Braves tonight. And Braves fans, you better cross your fingers and you better hope that Max Fried is healthy and effective. Uh, the last couple of starts that he had before he went on the I.L., it wasn't, I mean, by any other pitching standard uh, for the Braves this year. It would have been remarkable what he was able to do, but it, it had slipped a little bit for Max Fried in his last couple of starts. So uh, watch the game tonight. It's going to be very interesting, and it's going to be very important. Ian Anderson starts on Saturday, and Kyle Wright coming off of a good start this past Monday. Kyle Wright will start on Sunday for the Braves. This is their last road trip of the season. So three in New York, and then they return to Atlanta next week for four against the Marlins, and then they finish up the season in Atlanta next weekend uh, with four or three games against the Boston Red Sox. So that's it. 
three with the Mets, four with the Marlins, three with the Red Sox, and we are off to the, at this point, I can't imagine how the Braves could manage to miss out on the postseason, but I won't jinx it. I'll just say most likely the playoffs starting uh, not next week, but the week after. So let's talk about it a little bit. You know, for me, um, this season has been obviously strange. I mean, a 60-game baseball season is, is strange. Usually over the course of 162 games, there's enough ups and downs. There, You know, until you get to September after playing – 125, 130 games, that's when it really starts feeling like, okay, this is a must-win game here or there. You know, this entire season has felt must-win. And I think, you know, in just kind of texting people and talking to people, um, it's funny how this baseball season has kind of mimicked a football season in that every single game seems to get a lot more attention. It seems to mean more. Um, and not just from the standings point of view, obviously with less games, every game was more important in the big picture of the season. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, every Acuna strikeout seems like it's more important. Every, uh, you know, Freddie Freeman, the hitting streak, you know, it was, oh, man, it's one of the greatest hitting streaks. And, you know, well, I mean, it was it was great. Don't get me wrong. And Freddie's had a remarkable season, especially due to the fact that he didn't really get the summer camp uh, action that he would have liked to have gotten because of his positive COVID test. Um but everything has just seemed to be kind of magnified. And so uh, what I feel like that's meant for me, and I'll just speak for myself, and, and you can kind of speak to yourself and see if you think maybe you feel the same way I do. But I have think, I think I've been more negative this season and maybe completely illogically. Um, the Braves have been in first pretty much the entire year. You know, and, and, and I know that because the season was so short, everybody was like, okay, they're doing fine now, but what about the playoffs? And and I don't I don't want to diminish that because I do think that that is, as, as we get into the next couple of weeks, I think there's a time to have that conversation. My thing is, just because it's a 60-game regular season, let's don't diminish the fact that the Braves, despite all of the injuries, despite everything that's happened with this team, and despite, frankly, the front office not doing what they needed to do or probably should have done to make sure that this team was elite. They've gone out and they've dominated the NL East. They have led for the vast majority of this season. Even when they've struggled, I don't think the, the, the lead in the East has been down to even a single game uh, at any point that I can remember over the last month. This has been a dominant performance by this team as far as the standings go. And in this season, maybe more than any other, you know, it, it, it almost sets up like an NFL season in that your, your primary job has got to be to win the division. Then you get to the playoffs and you take your shot. But you've got to win the division to get those home games in the first round uh, of the playoffs, the two out of three. So I think that I have been too negative, probably too negative on the podcast. And we're going to talk about why and we're going to try to – I'm trying to kind of work through this myself, so hopefully I can help you work through it as well. But at the end of the day, I think we do need to take these next 10 days and 10 games and really appreciate, before the playoffs even start, appreciate what this team has done this year because it's not nothing. It, it, it's something to be recognized. It's something to be celebrated. A lot of teams, just look at the Nationals. I know they won the World Series last year. I know they lost from Doan, and I know they had Strasburg go down. The Nationals are nine and a half games behind the Braves. They are 18, I think 
15 and 26. The Nationals are doing exactly what they did last year when they were one of the worst teams in baseball. And then in May, they got hot and they turned out to win the World Series. Well, I think it's impressive that the Braves have not had that struggle. You know, the Nationals are probably much better over the course of 162 games than they've showed in this, you know, shortened season. But they they didn't have time to turn it around, and they're going to miss the playoffs. Um, but I think it is it has to be recognized, the accomplishment of the Braves being able to adapt to this new schedule, to be able to come out, play well from the get-go. Of course, it's baseball, so there's been ups and downs. There's been three-game losing streaks. There's been five-game winning streaks. But over the course of the, the 50 games that they've already played, they've shown that they're a very good team, and they were able to come together and be a very good team very quickly, and that's what you needed this year. And so I, I think we have to commend the players, and as much as it, it gets stuck in my throat a little bit, even Smith, the team has played well, and we should enjoy that. The team is most likely going to win their third straight division championship. And no matter what happens two weeks from now, shouldn't we be able to celebrate that a little bit? Like, why are we rushing to the end knowing that this is probably not a World Series team because of the starting pitching? But we haven't had a World Series team in, what, 25 years? So as non-World Series teams go, this one's pretty good. It's been fun to watch. They come back. They have a lot of great players. My biggest regret, I would have loved to have seen this lineup over a longer season. I, I think to me that's it. Like, as much as I think this pitching staff would have driven us all crazy to have to watch it over 162 games, um, I really would have loved to see what this offense could do. Because the reality is this offense has not clicked yet. And, and as crazy as that sounds because of the, the output that they've had at different times, scoring 29 runs a couple of weeks ago. Um, Adam Duvall playing completely out of his mind. At no point has everybody been healthy and in the lineup and just playing well. So ever since uh, Albies and uh, Acuna got back in the lineup, Acuna had a couple of days where he played okay, but he is really, really struggling over his last five or six games. And so – if you have Acuna just being Acuna, not being like the superstar 50-50 guy, okay, but just normal, regular, really good Ronald Acuna. If you had Acuna playing his normal and you had everybody else in this lineup playing their normal and you had Adam Duvall playing out of his mind, it would just be really interesting to see. And hopefully we see that in about two weeks because – as much as it feels like the pitching staff will doom this team, maybe we can get enough pitching that our offense can continue to score runs. And and what I've seen and what I've been very encouraged about, and of course it's a super small sample size, right? But the Braves hitting has done a good job against good pitching and the in that they have been able to work the count and work those Really good pitchers. Garrett Cole is one that comes to mind. Um, Scherzer the other night is another that comes to mind. We've been able to really have a very smart approach against some of the best pitchers in baseball in order to get to bullpens. And the reality is that if it comes down to a bullpen 
and late-inning offense game. Now, well, now things have swung back in favor where you feel like the Braves not only have a chance but a huge advantage because this team has shown they are very good in the late innings and they can continue to chop away at a lead and come back and win late. And the bullpen is an absolute strength, especially in a playoff series where you know you're not going to be pitching, you know, guys that you, you don't have to save anybody for the next day. You have to leave it all out on the field. Um, little water boy reference there for you. So I think that as much as it feels like this entire season has, has been, well, the Braves are playing good, yeah, but, and, and, and I'm, I've been one to say that every single week, I think let's take the next 10 days and not yeah, but anything. Let's just enjoy it. Because here's what we have. As I said, we have Max Reed starting tonight. Hopefully he's coming back and he's healthy. We can see two good starts out of him over the next 10 days. Ian Anderson has been a joy to watch pitch. And and that there is no yeah, but with Ian Anderson. All it is is yeah, and. Because it's just going to keep getting better with that kid over the next couple of years. But how exciting is it to know that, you know, if he goes out and he gets rocked in the playoffs, so what? So what? He he, he was in Gwinnett for most of this year. He's He's got like four major league starts. So the better story is what if he goes in the playoffs and he pitches really, really well? I was encouraged. I've been encouraged by Kyle Wright. His results haven't been great. But to me, of all of the young guys that were in oh, – I say young guys, they're all young. But of all the pitchers that we've just kind of funneled in and out, he's the one to me that seems like – if he can get his mind around how to pitch at the major league level, that his stuff is plenty good enough. It's kind of how I felt about Sean Newcomb, but over the course of time, Sean Newcomb has proven he can't do it. Um, doesn't mean he won't figure it out eventually, but right now he can't do it. The hope with Kyle Wright is that his his confidence and his mentality and his approach will match his actual ability and talent as a pitcher because – that's the difference in a Mike Soroka and a Ian Anderson and some of these other guys like Newcomb and Tukey who have struggled so much. It's not that Nuke and Tukum, Nuke and Tukey are not as talented. I think they probably are. The problem is they don't have the confidence to go up there and throw pitches and let the other team hit the ball sometime. But if you're going to hit it, you're going to hit my pitch. They're, they're throwers, but they're not really pitchers. And from the word go with Mike Soroka, that first start he made two years ago, over two years ago now, up in Toronto, you could tell that he just had confidence. He wasn't afraid of the other team making contact, and he had faith that his stuff was good enough to perform on the major league level. Ian Anderson, same deal. He's not up there trying to strike every single batter out. He's not afraid to let the other guy hit the ball because he knows he's got the defense behind him. If Kyle Wright, and I don't think you're going to see anything spectacular from Kyle Wright over the next two two starts to make you think, all right, he can be like the game one starter. It's not like that. But if the Braves make it out of the first round of the playoffs, which is, just to remind you, a three-game series at the higher seeds home park, if they make it out of that, then they're going to move on to the divisional series, which is what we traditionally understand as a divisional series, the best of five. Major League Baseball came out this week and said that major, and I believe it's just for the first round and the divisional round. There are no off days, which means that 
you're going to have to use four starting pitchers in the divisional round. So if the Braves advance, they're going to need Kyle Wright if there is a game four of the divisional series. That's a lot of ifs. I get it. But Kyle Wright's going to have to take a start. And so in that game, do you need Kyle Wright going out and throwing seven innings of two-hit baseball, giving up one run? Absolutely not. But you need him to be able to get out of the dad blame fourth inning. So what we're looking for and what we're grading on right now is a much lower scale and a smaller bar. You know, like we, we don't need guys to go out there and be Maddox, Slavin, and Smalls. We need guys to go out there and be Russ Ortiz. We need guys to be able to go out there and be like, you know, Denny Nagel. You don't have to be fantastic. You just can't suck. And so for too much of this season, the Braves are giving up three runs in the first inning. And, I mean, it's, it's been commendable what the offense is able to do. But the same thing that I said about the Braves is also going to be true for other teams. They're not going to manage their bullpen. So if you get down early, you are going to get every single positive matchup that the opposing team can give you throughout the rest of that game. You have to stay in games. You can't get down five to nothing in the third inning of a playoff game and expect to be able to come back. Doesn't mean this team can't do it, but that is not a way. Just because we've done it in the regular season does not mean it's going to transfer over the playoffs. And it's not just because playoff teams are better. Typically they are. But the real reason is because the managerial decisions in the playoffs, there's more pressure, but in a lot of ways it's simpler because you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You have to worry about winning that day. And then the next day you have to worry about whatever situation you're in with your bullpen based on the previous day. But in the playoffs, you can't sacrifice a win. So, I mean, if the Braves, even in a five- or a seven-game series, you're not going to be sitting there in game two. Well, we won game one, so we're going to go ahead and throw Luke Jackson out there. And if we lose game two, oh, well. Every single game is must-win. And because of that, you can manage it a lot differently. And so for the Braves, it's going to be important, not that the starting pitching is fantastic, but it just can't be putrid like it's been for a lot of this season. On the flip side, the Braves offense is going to have to do a little bit more early. They've been so effective in the middle innings and at the end of the game coming back. And I'm not saying that they can't continue to do that, but they have to get out there and score a run or two early. And I think that situational hitting is something that the Braves have struggled with. They've talked about it a lot on the broadcast. You know, runner at third and less than two outs. The Braves are not good in that situation. So whatever has to change over the next 10 days, whether it's a mentality, I, I personally feel like I've seen a lot of guys taking, you know, taking the ball the other way and just settling for singles, which I think is in those situational times having that club in your bag rather than just waiting for, you know, another three-run homer. That's what you're going to need in the playoffs. You're going to need to be able to go up there and find a gap. You're going to need to be able to go up there and you got a runner on second with nobody out. Hit the ball to the right side of the infield and give yourself a chance to get that runner to third. So I know that if you watch baseball, it really feels like, you know, that's the – it's kind of cliche when they say things like that, but it's, it's cliche for a reason, and you do have to be more effective – when you're trying to score runs in the playoffs because those those situations come along less often. And the biggest thing is, and we saw this last year with the Braves in game four, and you know, obviously game five was a complete disaster, but when you don't get those runs in, 
it starts getting in your mind and it starts really affecting and, and kind of building pressure on your side. And then it starts giving the other team, even if they haven't had much success, it gives them confidence that, hey, we're still in this. And so the, the dynamics of a playoff series are just so much different than the dynamics of the regular season. So I hope over the next couple of days, Acuna can snap out of it a little bit, a couple of good starts from uh, Max Fried and Kyle Wright. I hope Ian Anderson continues to just kind of progress. You know, you don't need him going out there peaking right now. I think if Ian Anderson just does what he's already been doing, the worst Ian Anderson start so far this year is still better than every other start by any starting pitcher that was not named Max Freed or Mike Soroka. So we don't need Ian Anderson to improve. We just need Ian Anderson to do what he's been doing. Uh, the big question mark is going to be Cole Hamels. And as we get to next week's podcast, you know, sometime either next Wednesday or Thursday, that's going to be the question. Cole Hamels first start earlier this week. He did not make it out of the third inning. He threw about 52 pitches. Um, the first and second innings, he got through without a whole lot of problems. The third inning, he got tagged a little bit, and he came out, got the first out of the fourth inning, and then he was taken out of the game. So it's going to be really important, one, for Cole Hamels to go out there and just be, you know, I haven't heard anything yet. I know a lot of people were talking about the most important thing at this point for Cole Hamels was just being healthy and feeling good. I haven't heard that he's not fit. We'll do the press conference before today's game. So it'll be interesting to hear the report on Hamels, how he's feeling after throwing 52 pitches on Wednesday night. Um, but if he's healthy, he's going to be probably your game two starter. Now, it, I, I guess it would be very situational depending on who the Braves match up with in the playoffs, what happens in game one. You know, a, a lot of things can change that. Max Freeze is the number one, but it feels like the Braves might be hesitant to throw Ian Anderson in game two. But if you think about it, it's like, well, if they lose game one and you got to win game two, do you want to throw Ian Anderson? Because even if you win game two, now you got to go – if you don't throw Ian Anderson in game two, got to throw him in a decisive game three. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different dynamics there. But I think it's going to be important that Cole Hamels can throw about 70, 75 pitches in his next start later this week, and, and hopefully he can just be effective. I don't think there's any doubt that there's nobody else on the Braves staff outside of Ian Anderson or Max Freed that you have any sort of confidence in to be able to go out and throw a legitimate start in the playoffs. So you're going to need three starters in the first series. So Cole Hamels is going to be one of those guys. I think it's just important that if he can throw about 70, 75 pitches midweek, he can turn around pitch next weekend, um, and that would be his last start before the playoffs. And at that point you're sitting there thinking, okay, Maybe he can go out there in the playoffs and throw 85, 90 pitches and give you a legitimate four or five innings, which with the Braves' bullpen gives you a very good chance to, to win the game. So that's what we're looking at from the Braves' standpoint. Uh, if the playoffs started today, everybody would be surprised because there's still 10 games left in the season. But if that happened, the Braves would be matched up with the San Francisco Giants. Um, the, the very interesting dynamic of all of this is that the Braves could end up playing – the Phillies or the Marlins in the first round, depending on how the seeding works out. So that's a team you've already played ten times. Or you could be playing the Cardinals or the Giants, a team that you haven't played at all this season. So it's just going to be kind of interesting. I don't know which way would, 
you know, benefit the Braves. Uh, I don't know if it does it make it harder for an opposing team if it's the Giants and they've never seen Ian Anderson before. Does any of that even matter? I don't know. But the exciting thing is the Braves are still in first place. The lead is three games over the Marlins, four and a half over the Phillies, and then the Mets and the Nats are out of it at this point. So it the Braves can potentially lock up the division if they can win two out of three against the Mets and then head up, you know, play the Marlins well, they could potentially clinch the a playoff berth this weekend, but they could clinch the division sometime middle of next week as they take on the Marlins. So fun times. We've got a lot of baseball to talk about, which is crazy because we also have a lot of football to talk about. So let's move on and let's go talk about the Big Ten. As I said earlier, there was big news this week out of the Big Ten as the Big Ten decides to reverse their decision to not play fall sports, which would have included football, and now the Big Ten has a plan to return to the field in late October. So I want to start this because I've I've thought a lot about this topic. I get hot uh, when I think about it, so we'll kind of see where this goes. I have a plan. Who knows if the plan is going to come to fruition over the next few minutes. I want to start with this, is that given all the dynamics that we have experienced this year, I don't want any comments I make about the the process the Big Ten has gone through, the rhetoric that the Big Ten used when they canceled the season, the rhetoric the Big Ten is using now when they are returning to play. I don't want any of that to be misconstrued with, if the Big Ten's decision not to play was truly only based on the players' safety and their true desire to protect players, then nothing the Big Ten did was wrong. And just because other conferences did it differently doesn't mean that the Big Ten was wrong. And so player safety always, 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 especially in college, but always, has to be the number one priority. And so I am completely in support of taking care of players and making sure that there was a safe way for them to return to the field. Now, the problem is that three conferences have shown that there was a safe way to return to the field. It's not perfect. This year is not perfect. And I think that's where I've been struggling with this entire situation. It's because on August 11th, and if you you haven't heard my podcast about the Big Ten canceling, uh, the national media, all of that. Please go back and listen to it if you've got you know, 45 minutes to waste. It's a very in-depth look at how all of this happened on the front end. I don't want to redo all of that now. But when the Big Ten canceled on August 11th, they absolutely thought every other conference was going to follow suit. The Pac-12 did follow suit. But later that week, the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 decided to continue towards playing. And I think the revisionist history that's happening now is the Big Ten, out of an abundance of caution, decided not to play. The SEC, ACC, and Big 12 said, we don't care about our players, and we decided to play. And that's not what happened. The ACC, Big 12, and SEC did not decide to play football on August 12th. They decided not to cancel it on August 12th. And I think as we look back over the course of this entire situation, it's not that the Big Ten canceled. 
it's that the Big Ten canceled when they were under absolutely no pressure to do so. They could have delayed. They could have said, hey, we're not starting on time. We don't know what we're going to do. We're going to wait a couple more weeks and figure it out. Because essentially, that's what the SEC and ACC and Big 12 did. The conferences that are playing, if you go back and just look at Greg Sankey, all the comments that he made about this entire situation, they were all qualified. We don't know. Just this week, somebody asked Greg Sankey, are you confident that the season is going to start on time? He said, at this point, I am confident that the season is going to start on time. The follow-up question was, are you confident that the season will be finished? And he said, absolutely not. How could you have any confidence of that? We think we have the protocols in place. We think we have systems in place to take care of things. We think that our players are safe and protected and that we have the, everything in place that we need to be able to not only execute the season, but also protect our players. But we don't know. And if things get bad two or three weeks from now and there's outbreaks across college football, they're going to shut it down. And they're not saying that they're not going to. I mean, at this point, it feels like the, the SEC has committed to play in the first couple of weeks. And then we'll see after that. Yeah, they have a schedule because you need to know where you're going next week if we play. But the narrative around this that upsets me so bad is that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, they care. The other conferences are just in it for the money. And now the Big Ten, they have figured out how to do this right, whereas nobody else did. And the only – I tried to think of a lot of analogies. I don't think this is a perfect analogy, but it's like the – The Big Ten is like a flat earther who's gone around for months and months and months expounding on how the the earth is flat. And then earlier this week, they called a press conference to announce to the world the breaking news that the earth is not indeed flat, but it is round. That is how I feel about the Big Ten announcement this week. They're coming out and saying, and the breaking news here. After a weekend where the ACC and the Big 12 played football, hey, by the way, it's safe to play football. Well, no crap. Thank you so much for for letting us know now. Now, again, I'm trying to balance this with the player safety thing, and I think the way the Big Ten handled this is really the problem. If they would have come out at the beginning and said, listen, the plans that the other conferences have, they're going to be testing two and three times a week because that's what the other conferences are doing. We're not comfortable with that. Until we can test daily and get rapid results, we don't feel comfortable returning to the field. Had the Big Ten just said that, and they didn't have to say that the day they canceled, but had they ever come out and said, this is when we'll feel comfortable returning to the field, then this time frame, this decision, all of that will make sense. And maybe that was their decision. Maybe that was their thought process. And they don't they don't have to answer to me. They don't have to answer to anybody else. But with all the, the heat that they took over the last few weeks from players, players' families, coaches, administrators, governors, presidents, all of the criticism that they've had over the course of the last month, you would have thought that they would have said, hey, we're not against playing. But here's what has to be in place for us to feel confident and and, and feel comfortable moving forward. They never did that. And I think that's why it's so hard to accept now that 
they truly feel better about the medical situation, and that's the reason they're returning to the field, not that they expected all of this just to go terribly for the conferences that did continue, and when it didn't, oh, well, crap, well, I guess we better play them. And the insinuation that health was never a factor for the conferences that continued, and it was the only factor for the Big Ten and Pac-12, is insane because if you if you go and you look at the protocols that any SEC, ACC, or Big 12 school have put into place, you'll see that they are doing a lot. Whether or not it's enough, who's to say? Who knows? That's the that's the debate we get in every aspect of our lives right now. It's what is enough and what is too much. So we don't know, but they have protocols in place. And to me, the fact that some games have been canceled shows that the protocols are working. They are testing. They are able to figure out, oh, this team is having some problems. We're not going to play. They're willing to do that. To me, that's the best you can hope for in this situation because perfect is not on the table. And the flip side of that argument, that health was the only thing that mattered to the Big Ten and it didn't matter at all to the other conferences, the flip side of that argument is, that money has not played any factor for the Big Ten, and it's the only thing that matters to the conferences that have continued to play and will be playing or already playing. That is ridiculous. Because let me be honest with you. If you are listening to this right now and you honestly believe that the money that the Big Ten is go- was going to be leaving on the table did not play a significant factor in the decision to return to play, please, 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 Turn this podcast off and go seek medical help because you are an absolute idiot. There's no way. And and I don't believe any of the national writers, any of the Big Ten apologists, I don't believe any of them actually believe that. They're just going to keep selling that because that's the, that's the propaganda that the Big Ten is putting out, is that it's all about health and player safety. It's not about money. It's not about the college football playoffs. It's not about any of that. And the way I can prove very, very quickly that money, the college football playoff, and all of that is a huge part of this is that the new Big Ten schedule is built to be able to get a team, at least one team, into the daggum playoff. The Big Ten, bastion of health in college football. The Big Ten is going to start back on October 24th. They're going to play an eight-game season, concluding on December 19th with their conference championship game, where the number one team in the East is going to take on the number one team in the West. To help their teams get a ninth game across the board, the number two team from the East and the number two team from the West are also going to play, and on down to the number seven team in the East will take on the number seven team in the West. So every Big Ten team will end up playing nine games this year. The problem is that by starting on August or uh, October 24th, which is really the earliest that they could start because they have to give their players time to like practice and get ready for the season, you have nine games in nine weeks. So explain to me how that is about player safety. It's not. The college football playoff is being announced on December 20th. This was the best they could do. They're not choosing to play 
eight regular season games and a championship weekend, they're not choosing to play nine games because they think that's the best option. They're choosing to play nine games because that's the amount they can fit in given the time period that they've given themselves. So it is absolutely about the money. It's absolutely about the college football playoff. I think it is absolutely about health concerns too. I'm not diminishing the fact that they felt like that it was not safe to play. And that's why they did what they did. I just don't think, and I said on the podcast weeks ago, the problem was not the decision they made. The problem was the timing of the decision because they did not have to go back and read all the press releases, go back and read everything from Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner. They never said we're delaying. They said we're canceling football and all the fall sports, and we're going to try to look at playing in the spring. And every single week that passed, then they started talking about, well, maybe we'll start playing around no, uh, Thanksgiving. Well, maybe we can start playing by the beginning of November. Well, now maybe we can start playing by the end of October. So the reality is, as other leagues figured it out, worked through it, had some obstacles. I mean, Tennessee had to shut down practice for a couple of days. Mississippi, Ole Miss shut down practice for a couple of days. Virginia and Virginia Tech were supposed to play last weekend. They didn't play. Now they've had to reschedule that game. So it has not been perfect in the other leagues. I'm not trying to insinuate that it is. COVID wins, okay? That's the part of this that we all have to understand. The the SEC isn't the winner in this situation. COVID wins. COVID is going to go undefeated this year because it's ruined everything to a certain extent. But – We are getting some sports back. And for people who love sports, that is important. Is it as important as people's lives? No. Is it a zero-sum decision between people's lives and sports? No. So anybody that tries to frame it that way has an agenda. And everybody has an agenda, but you just have to accept it and see that. The Big Ten's error was saying, we're going to start football on September 1, which is when their first game was supposed to kick off or September 3rd, excuse me, when their first game was supposed to kick off, and then having to decide on August 11th, hey, we're not going to play at all in the fall. They've just made bad decisions all the way around. Even when they were the right decision, they made it in a wrong way. And so where we are now is you've got other fan bases, because now, now that we're just talking about sports, now we're not talking about protocols and health and safety. You don't have the Big Ten pointing at everybody else saying you're being dangerous. They can't do that anymore because they're going to go back on the field. So now we all turn back into sports fans. And as a sports fan, I don't like the Big Ten because I like the SEC, right? And as a, as a sports fan, the Big Ten fans, they don't like the SEC, so they're going to criticize. So now we've we crossed back over from you know each of us trying to pretend like we're medical health experts based on the last article we read off of, you know, Facebook or Twitter, to, well, now we're just, admittedly, we're just sports fans. They're being illogical and irrational. So the now the narrative is, is it fair that the Big Ten is going to come back, play a shorter season, and get into the playoffs potentially? And my answer to that is, we'll see. Because here's the deal. Later this next week, we are going to get a Big Ten schedule, maybe as early as today, Friday, but definitely sometime next week. And we will see very, very quickly what the plan is. Because anybody that saw the like the SEC schedule, it got harder for a couple of teams, but I think overall the way they handled it, 
it's balanced. Um, but I say that it punished the teams that weren't going to be good. You know, Missouri added LSU and Alabama, but Missouri's not any good. So really, what the the, the calculation that was made in the SEC office was, hey, we're not going to add Alabama to Florida's schedule because Florida's a contender, and we don't want all of our teams to kill each other before we have a chance to make a playoff. So we're just going to, you know, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Missouri, Vandy, you're going to draw the short straws. And the teams that are contenders and are better, we're going to give them, when we have these added games, we're going to give them as easy of a schedule as we possibly can. It's obvious that that's what the SEC did. The difference is, that it is balanced for a team like Georgia that already had to play Florida, Auburn, and Alabama. Well, they didn't add any kind of spectacularly difficult games. For a team like Florida, they have LSU as their crossover. They play them every year, but the rest of their SEC West schedule was fairly soft. Okay, well, we're going to add A&M. So I felt like what the SEC did was smart and as fair as it possibly could be. I say all that to say that when we see the Big Ten schedule, it'll be interesting how they do it. At this point, they haven't made any big announcement. I mean, they're they're keeping the divisions because they're going to have East versus West on that championship weekend. But will you play all the teams in your division? Because if you do, that means, you know, Ohio State is going to play Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, that's going to be three of the, those six games just from that division. And then how do they handle the crossover games? Are you going to have Ohio State play Wisconsin? Or are you going to maybe – maybe we'll just wait and see if that one happens on December 19th. You know? So because they can generate this schedule however they want, it's going to be interesting to see if they try to manufacture a schedule that helps the Big Ten make the playoffs. Because what I do feel very confident about if you have a Ohio State team that doesn't get challenged and loses a game, I think it's going to reflect poorly on their playoff chances if you have an SEC team that is challenged and loses a game and, and you're having to make a decision, now, whether that's a conference champion or not. Because I do think playing less games matters. You're talking about a, a potential SEC champion that will play 11 games, and a potential Big Ten champion that will play nine. So if you have a 10 or a, a 9 and 2 SEC champion, and you have a 8 and 1 Ohio State or Big Ten champion, how do you compare those? But that's really not going to be the comparison, right? Because both of those teams are getting in. The comparison is going to be I have a 8 and 1. Big Ten champion, and I have a 9-1 SEC non-champion who lost the game to a team in their division and didn't get in the title game. So let's just put a name on it. If Alabama loses to LSU this year and LSU runs the table, that's not going to happen, by the way, but if it did, are you going to keep a 9-1 Alabama team out in favor of an 8-1 Big Ten champion? I don't know, but that's the, that's where we're going to end up with all of this. That's where all this is headed, is all the conjecture and all the talking now is strictly about sports, 
and it's all about, hey, it's not fair, they're playing less games. Well, the SEC is playing less games than the ACC, but I don't think a lot of SEC fans are going to want to hear that. So the reality is let's just wait and see how it shakes out. I said the other week on the podcast, I don't think they're – it will surprise me if they're undefeated teams this year because I do think playing your conference week in, week out, without those, you know, extra weeks – uh, of, oh, yeah, we're playing a team, but we're playing Austin P. I think without those games, it's going to be harder for teams to peak every single weekend and be at their best. The way the Big Ten is doing it, playing nine games in nine weeks, that's tough just in general. Don't forget, we still live in a time of COVID. There is no way, there's absolutely no way that more games are not going to continue to be canceled from time to time. And even if games aren't canceled, you're going to have significant injuries altering the dynamics of games. You're going to have starting quarterbacks not able to play. And then you're going to have to factor all of that in when you're, you know, again, let's just use Alabama because they're the one the committee seems to love so much. You know, if Alabama's starting quarterback doesn't play against Georgia and Georgia beats Alabama, how is the committee going to look at that loss? How, how do they factor that in? Just don't even go to the rest of the schedule. Are we counting that against them? If Georgia goes to Tuscaloosa and wins on a last-second field goal, but Alabama was playing with their backup quarterback, do we assume that, hey, we're not really going to count that against Alabama? These are This is what this season is going to be about. COVID is still going to win. We're just going to have to have all of these normal sports debates in lieu of or in light of all of these other medical factors that we're going to have to deal with. So whether it's one team only plays seven games and this other team played 11, that could be a debate that we have. Um, You know, it it could be all over the place. So I do think that the Big Ten coming back and playing is a good thing for college football because you're going to get more college football. And for a college football fan, that's what we're looking for. Last weekend and this weekend, we're going to do the viewing guide here in just a moment. But the last two weekends, yes, there's been college football, but you can tell it's not the ACC's fault that they didn't produce a marquee, huge matchup week one because they were the only conference playing. It's not their fault. You know, I blame the SEC that there weren't more good games last weekend. I blame the Big 12 because there were no intra-conference games last weekend. As we move forward, you're going to start having, you know, more football over the weekend, which means there's more games, which means there are just more opportunities for there to be good games, which is more enjoyable. So by the time the Big Ten actually steps on the field at the end of October, you're going to have the SEC season, you know, heading into their fifth week. You're going to have the ACC and Big 12 seasons heading into their seventh week. That's going to be the interesting dynamic here is that you're going to have the Big Ten essentially trying to come in and make an impression after we've already had an impression about so many other teams. You know, the, the the AP and coaches polls removed all of the Big Ten teams uh, after last weekend because the preseason polls had them in there, but once games were played, they took them away, which is why you have a top 25 matchup of two non-top 25 teams in the ACC this week. However, when do they add them back? Are they going to add them back? This weekend, after this weekend's games, are we going to wait until, like, a week or two before they start? I I mean, I know it doesn't really matter, but it does kind of. Because 
where a team starts out ranked absolutely affects the perception of them nationally and ultimately affects where they could end up in the rankings. And not so much in the top four in the college football playoff, but it will make a big difference on the teams that are able to make the New Year's Six Bowls. So the best part of this entire segment, and I've been going about 23 minutes now just talking about the Big Ten, the decision, and college football in general. The best part is this is the part of college football we like, crapping on other conferences, defending with, you know, complete blind spot your team and your conference. This is the beauty of college football. So even in a year of COVID, when we're going to have different conversations, hopefully we can still have really passionate and fun and completely biased conversations because that is really the beauty of college football. We're going to finish up today's podcast with our weekly viewing guide, as I've already alluded to. This is not the best week. So, um, unfortunately for college football, I've only got two games for you, and I don't feel very strongly about either one. Uh, as I mentioned last week in the viewing guide, it's a sad state of affairs when the game I'm looking forward to the most in week one, and then again in week two are both games featuring the mighty North Avenue nerds, Georgia Tech. Uh, UCF, the number 14 team in the country, goes on the road to Bobby Dodd Stadium, which I actually passed yesterday as I was doing some traveling for work, uh, to take on Tech 3.30 on Saturday afternoon. The weather will not be a factor the way it was in Tallahassee last week. Um, it's going to be a beautiful day in Georgia and Atlanta on Saturday. So Tech and UCF square off. Um, so what we had last week with Tech is you had them have a big win and taking nothing away from them over Florida State. Anytime Tech can go on the road to Tallahassee and win a game, respect to Tech, okay? Like, that's a big deal for any program. If Georgia would have been playing Florida State, despite the talent gap, going into a place like Doe Campbell Stadium and winning is important, and it's, it's impressive. So good on Jeff Collins, and congratulations to Tech for that win. This is different. UCF is a good team. I can't pretend like I know a whole lot about them. I'm going to find out about them this weekend. If Tech wins, Tech's going to be ranked in the the next poll, and now all of a sudden expectations are going to start changing for Georgia Tech this year. If Tech loses close, then I think you can say as a Tech fan, okay, hey, steps have been taken. We've beaten Florida State. We stayed close and played tough against US, uh, UCF, a ranked team, a top 15 team. You can have some positive, you know, vibes if you're Tech fans and you lose close. If UCF goes in there and blows Tech out, I think what you're going to realize is uh, Florida State sucks and Georgia Georgia Tech might also suck. And just because they played each other doesn't mean, you know, Tech may be better than Florida State, but that might not be saying very much. So I'm I'm looking forward to that game on Saturday afternoon. I think it's going to be interesting. I'm hoping it's going to be competitive. Um... So, to me, it's going to tell a lot about Tech, and it's going to tell a lot about UCF. Um, The only other game that's even worth considering watching is the top 25 matchup that isn't. So, number 17, Miami, and number 18, Louisville. Um, Neither team was ranked last week, and that's because the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were both included in the rankings. When those teams were taken out, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, all of a sudden, there's going to be more SEC, ACC, and Big 12 teams moved into the top 25 just because, and that's what this game is. But 
ESPN, ABC, they're taking advantage of it. They're making it the Saturday night game of the week. So number 17, Miami, on the road at number 18, Louisville. And that game will kick off at 7.30 on ABC. You're going to get Kirk Herbstreet, Chris Fowler. Uh, they're the best in the business as far as I'm concerned. So uh, Saturday night rolls around. There you go. You got some college football on uh, ABC. And then on Sunday, the Falcons play on the road at the Cowboys at 1 o'clock. That game will be on Fox. So I looked. There's really not any 4 o'clock games that are, like, super exciting to me. So uh, my Sunday afternoon is going to be absolutely taken up with watching golf. And my Saturday afternoon will be kind of keeping an eye on it as well. The U.S. Open being played this weekend at Historic Winged Foot. The coverage is uh, from 11 to 7.30 on Saturday and from 10 to 6 on Sunday. So for me, just because I love any kind of sports you can put on television other than horse racing uh, and tennis. Um, but for me, that's what this weekend is going to be about. We're going to do some golf. We're going to combine the golf and the football, and that's how we're going to get through the last weekend of the fall without SEC football. So that's our weekend viewing guide for this weekend. Uh, turn TVs on. Note the time and the place and where to find everything that you want to watch this weekend. And if you can make yourself, there are some other football games on at noon on Saturday, but I personally could not be forced to watch Baylor and Houston play football, so I didn't even mention that. Thank you so very much for sticking with me on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate the patience with the sound quality. Uh, next week, we'll be back to our normal setup and normal situation. Next week, we also will have bonus content throughout the week, as it is game week for the University of Georgia. Um, on the road at Arkansas, a week from Saturday, 4 o'clock kickoff. So we'll have a lot more content next week. Also, at some point next week, I hope to be able to bring you a celebratory mini-podcast celebrating the Atlanta Braves' third straight divisional championship and starting to talk about the playoffs. So it has taken a long time throughout this spring and summer, but we have finally gotten to the point to where the NFL is going to be going full, full force, college football is about to be going three-quarters force, got the NBA playoffs uh, in the conference championship round and headed toward the finals. You've got the Stanley Cup playoffs going on if you're Canadian and you're into that sort of thing. Uh, we've got some good golf this weekend. The sports calendar is finally filling up. And so if you're a sports fan, it's all good things right now on the sports calendar. So enjoy this beautiful weather we're going to have, at least in the uh, Classic City this weekend and in the greater Georgia area. I think the weather after the uh, hurricane has come through. Everything's supposed to be really nice for the next few days, so enjoy some nice fall weather. Get out, smoke something in the smoker, grill something on the grill. Enjoy your family. We've got a great weekend of sports headed your way. Good luck to you. Stay safe. And as always, go dogs.